Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology. This is the fifth and final episode of our mini-series on Newgrange and the Winter Solstice. For this last episode I had the opportunity to chat to Professor Gabriel Cooney. Gabriel has studied and written about Neolithic Island for decades and he provides us with some fascinating insights into the past. Like the other podcast, this one was recorded over Zoom so I hope you please forgive any little audio issues that happen but do bear with us, there's some fascinating stuff in here. I hope you enjoy the show. So I'm here now with Gabriel. Thanks so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Given the time of year that we're at, it's very natural to think about Newgrange. And it's been a bit of a shame, really, that, you know, the gathering that normally happens there every year for the solstice hasn't been able to take place this year. But can you remember, you know, as somebody who's studied and, and written about Neolithic Island for a good number of years now. Can you remember what your first experience at Newgrange was like? What did the monument look like then? And, and what were your first impressions when you walked away from it? Uh, that's a very good question, Ian. And I was, I was thinking about it since we talked initially. And um, I remember go, as a teenager doing a course about archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be very surprised as part of that if we didn't go to Newgrange. But to be honest, I don't really remember very much about it. And that would have been sometime in the mid to late 60s. And then I, when I was an undergraduate in UCD, I worked on at Nouth um, uh, on Professor George Ogan's excavation for two summers. And as part of that, we certainly visited Newgrange. And at that time, the excavations would still have been going on. So if you like, the monument was in a kind of state of transition um, from its old you know, form before, before the quartz uh, facade had been, had been put, put up. Um, and then my earliest, I, I suspect my earliest memory of being inside on the solstice was probably something the late, 1970s so still in that kind of quite early stage when the monument was if you like when the quartz facade was still very fresh if you like in people's mind yeah so um and it was i mean i've still been you know struck by um the first time i was inside um the, the kind of the, the monument itself you walk along the passage and you have to crouch and then you come into this amazing space where the chamber is when when Claire would be taking a crowd talking around this time of year, you know, 20, she probably has talked to you about that, 20 maybe people. So it's not a huge space, but it's so impressive. And the light, um, you know, inside when when the solstice light or artificial light, but particularly solstice light, when it when it lights up the interior and your eyes are lifted up to the to the covered roof. It is it is kind of stunning, you know. And so that's they're probably my earliest memories. And then more recently I've been there on and off uh, at this time of year in latter years I've tended to do this team act with Claire in uh, you know I'm often there on Christmas on the winter solstice itself outside and then one of the days afterwards I tend to, t- to play tag team with her so when she's talking inside and she gets fed up I'll do a bit of talking and fill in a bit of background on the archaeology or if somebody asks a question I'll fill that in and that's that's really enjoyable and what's also interesting coming back I suppose to that question about how people experience, you know, not people now, but in the past as well. It's it's very interesting how different it seems inside, depending on the group of people that you're with. Mm-hmm. It can be extraordinarily different in terms of the the feel of the place and the energy, depending on who's there and, and what they, you know, what they say and what they contribute and what their memories are of archaeology and Newgrange growing up. And you know, it's so it's a really interesting, a very interesting experience. And, and a privilege, always a privilege. And, and that recognition that, you know, if you think back to the Neolithic, that a bit like today, I, I expect it was quite similar to that notion of people gathering around outside and then a small number of people being inside 
and then coming back out and, and, and relaying this news, if you like, from the other side. Mm. And and of course, I was a, if you think about it, that was a very kind of political thing as well. And somebody who had the right news could, you know, sway things depending on what they wanted to say in terms of that encounter with the other world. Yeah. Yeah. So I've no doubt that it was a socially charged moment as well, if you look like in terms of that encounter between the inside world and the and the world outside, the people waiting outside to hear the news of maybe what was going to happen next. Or mm-hmm. and I remember, um, you know, something you don't think about, and and it's an entirely different social context. Mm-hmm. Whereas several years ago, I was privileged to be in Beijing, and um, the old city of Beijing is laid out on the winter and summer solstice, and uh, there's a key point in the city where the the, the emperor stood at the at the winter solstice and he sort of then kind of proclaimed what, what, what was likely to happen in the future so um very different but but you can see how in very different kinds of societies this connection between the cultural world and the natural world mm-hmm. and the cultural world in a sense being able to coordinate or maybe oversee the natural world is hugely important hugely significant i think and of course, ultimately, it's it's I think founded in that existential question of well, what happens next, yes. because that ultimately I think why these monuments were built to kind of be a place to hold the bones of the ancestors, to be a place where they could be remembered, where there is an explanation, a link with the other world, which just kind of explains why we're here. Yeah. yeah. Do, do, do you, does that make make sense? And, we, and we've come quite away from my initial experience as a student. Oh, no, that, but that's that's a, a really interesting way of thinking about it, isn't it? It's that um, the portent, I suppose. You wonder about the weight of the portent of whether the light shines or not and what that meant for people if it didn't. You know, was that immediate uh, devastation for them? Or do you think they would have took it as lightly in a sense as, oh, oh well, never mind, you know, kind of like the, the Groundhog Day thing in America? Or how do you think they would have seen either, you know, the light not happening on that particular uh, I, I think that's a, a, an important question. And um, I always think that, you know, the focus, our focus tends to be on the 21st of December as Solstice Day. But of course, I think for people who were, living by and who's not who had this kind of innate knowledge of the movement of the sun and the moon and the stars and the behavior of the of the earth through the year um i think that it was the period around the solstice that was important okay so i suspect it was much less likely that at, at least over one of those days that that you know you wouldn't you would have had that kind of the sun coming in and so that relief would have been there and it's, and it's very unusual, I think, at the moment for one, you know, for the sun not to appear at least on, over one of the days around the solstice. And I think this link with the, the this wider link with the land is is, is really important. Um, I remember again several for several years standing on the other side of the, of the vine on mm-hmm. solstice morning and looking up towards Newgrange, and again observing really some some years really stunning light effects that. That must have played, you know, that must have been important in the past as well. And one year seeing the sun and the moon in the sky at the same time. But probably the most striking was was that on several years observing, and in a way, I think this may be an answer to your question as well, because it wasn't just about the sunshine itself, but it was about the light coming into the valley. And if you're standing on the other side of the river and looking up on those mornings of the solstice, the the the, the light hits the top of the hill where Newgrange is first, and then comes slowly down the valley, as if it's lighting up the land down towards the river. And, and in a way, I think that's what this, this was about as well, this notion that the land was being blessed, if you like, or being renewed. Uh, and again, between the junction between the bones of the ancestors inside, the sparkle of the, the quartz, however it was displayed on the outside, whether it was a platform or a, a facade or whatever, the fact that people were continuing to bring quartz, probably, I think, right through the duration of the use of Newgrange. Mm-hmm. So adding their little bit, if you like, to the monument as well. All of those different elements coming together, if you like, mm-hmm. that made it such an important focus for for people at that time. And I think that that's really interesting, and especially considering it, you know, as a kind of five-day or multi-day event, because... It conjures up the opportunity then, in a sense, doesn't it, of people travelling from quite a distance and having ongoing festivals. Maybe there's a different yeah. 
activity every day kind of in terms of the ceremony and such with it culminating at a particular point but it it's uh it certainly conjures the picture because newgrange did have a big significance you can didn't it in terms of um a broader sense beyond the boing Valley. oh yeah and i suppose it's it's also i think important that we that we situate newgrange you know in the context of the other mega monuments now the newgrange sorry now um and Douth, and then the smaller sites, because it's part of that wider complex. But I mean, I think even going back to the, you know, the materials that are made to to make are used to make those monuments, the the, the grey wacky, mm-hmm. and now the it seems the most likely sources from Clare Head, you know, and the and the the quartz potentially coming from Wicklow. I know there's some debate about that. The gabbro and the and the granodiorite coming from you know at least North County Louth and into the Morn area. Um, so people are bringing those materials and in a way and of course bringing themselves mm-hmm. so yes i think undoubtedly it had that significance beyond the Boyne valley and um and i think you're right to refer to as well to people coming and gathering there at this time of year as as part as part of that process of if you like of initially of the construction of the monument and then of the celebration of of what was going on and, and maybe also that sense of things continuing, you know, that I, I wonder, was there ever a time when people decided New Range was finished? Or, or you know, that it, did that continuing involvement of people mean that it was always, if you like, changing? And certainly I think thinking about its subsequent history, you know, at the end of, in the period after 3000 BC, we're, we're inclined to see that as something radically different when the, sh- the focus shifts to outside to building these large outdoor enclosures in timber, initially and then eventually in, our, in, in you know as as, a, as hinges, but but in some ways there's a there's a constant echo there as well in those back to what was there before, and they tend to focus around you know the front end of Newgrange and to kind of echo the circularity of the monument, and so there's a continuing link I think as well to that notion of Newgrange being important even after its you know its formal construction ended i think that's a it's a really interesting thing to think about isn't it because you know jessica um made this point in a previous podcast we did on passage tombs about you know we still attend cathedrals that were built in the medieval period centuries later you know and Undoubtedly, the, there's difference with the way that the ceremonies and such are conducted, but there's also continuity as well in some ways. And you wonder, was that a similar story with the with Newgrange and, and monuments like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the, I mean, you know, one of the interesting things about the, the recent AA DNA work by Laura Casty and our colleagues that we, myself and Neil Carlin, talked about, um, you know, we wouldn't agree with all the interpretations, but it is interesting that. Yeah. That the um, the ADNA of the individuals from passage tombs, passage tombs in general, including Newgrange, but mm-hmm. you know if you think about passage tombs more broadly, uh, particularly the Carol Keel examples, that several of those individuals date to well after the monuments were built, mm-hmm. but generally have the same genetic signature as the people from the passage tombs, mm-hmm. suggesting this question about continuity, even though. At another level, archaeologists would say culturally it's quite different, mm-hmm. but it's, we're getting these interesting signals that there's a lot of continuity there as well, in terms of the the genetics. You know, it, it's really interesting that, isn't it? I mean, I suppose it feels a lot like you know Newgrange and and the Boyne Valley in in general. It, it has been well studied over you know a, a considerable period of time, but it seems just in the last few years in particular. There seems to have been a lot of things discovered, whether it's new toolkits and such, helping with that. But as well as uh, the ancient DNA work, there's of course you know the drone henge found by Anthony Murphy and, and Ken Williams. There's uh, surveys by Steve Davis uh, and National Monuments Service and UCD using lidar and so on. Um, so and of course the the new uh, newly discovered tomb there at Douth Hall as well has. The kind of the last few years of discovery changed some of your perceptions about Neolithic Island, or has it kind of confirmed some of the previous beliefs that you might have had? Uh, uh, well, I, I think change change probably better than than 
confirmed because I think we're always we're always you, you know we're we're always understanding more mm-hmm. through the work that and research that's done and as you say that interesting combination of you know new excavations and I'd throw into that as well Geraldine and Matt's excavation below New Grange of that really interesting monument Lake Neolithic um, clean his work at Douth. Uh, the reworking, if you like, of old archives and the application of new techniques. And there you have the ADNA and, you know, uh, um, and, and, and Jessica's project, which I think is going to be fundamentally important in terms of our understanding of this, the kind of questions we're asking this morning or talking about today. Um, and then, yeah, the application of technology in the sense of the LIDAR and, the, and, 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 and drones and so on. You have fantastic coming together. But, you know, in, in other ways, you have that sense of... Um, there's an amazing, I remember still being, you know, going back to, I was thinking when we were getting ready for this, you know, the, the images of Newgrange. And there's this fantastic painting by Nano Reed, who was a local artist, of, um, it draws on Edward Lewis's work, first plan of, of Newgrange back in the late 17th century, but it kind of explodes Newgrange into three-dimensionally. And I think in a way, I'm reminded of that when we think of all this new research. We've we've got these foundations that go back, you know, several hundred years, but we're continuing to add to the picture. And if you think about particularly the LIDAR and the drone, you know, imagery and and that clear demonstration of what we've got on the surface is simply that. And that there's fantastic archaeology that's under the surface and of which all visible trace is no longer present except when it's revealed through the application of specific technologies you know there's an amazing um there are amazing possibilities and potentials for further research as well and and about you know adding if you like to the outstanding the outstanding universal value of the site to quote it if you like it from a point of view of word you know it's it's important as a word heritage site and I, I, you know, and it's a very, it's a very vibrant debate as to what the character of the the society was like that that produced these monuments, and then how they, what was there before, which I think is a fundamentally important question as well. What was the, you know, what what was the the Mount Valley like through much of the fourth millennium? We know from now, you know, that we have these early Neolithic houses being back at three seven, and then the the focus of passage tomb activity from three three. You know the the centuries the, the the last two or three centuries before three thousand. But what about that kind of middle period? And what was the basis for the transformation and the beginnings of the passage tomb cemetery there? Uh, that and and they're really important questions that I think we're beginning to have more of the opportunity to grapple with. Mm-hmm. The more data we have, you know what I mean. So I think it's a very it's it's a very exciting time and. Um, the framework for the World Heritage Site, the research framework for the World Heritage Site that was developed in partnership between National Monument Service and the Heritage Council in 2009, you know, really posed a lot of big questions that are there to be answered. And we're in the process of answering those, but inevitably they'd throw up, they'd throw up more questions, you know. And I, and I think Jessica's right to put this focus on the people. Yeah. And understanding the people who... Who created the passage tombs and their and, and, and the people in their wider context of their connectivity with you know other places in Ireland and and internationally with you know the west coast of Britain from Wales up to Orkney more further afield to you know the European Brittany and so on um, and that fascinating question of why these forms these architectural forms these artistic forms are are repeated in different areas. And, you know, repeated over the course of a kind of millennium as well. You know, if you think about the early dates for we have from passage terms in Brittany, you know, so this, this, there, there are complex and, and really interesting questions there, I think. There are indeed, and, and it kind of, it, it's those continuity pieces, but with the differences too, it, it all kind of weaves together into a story that you really want to unpick. And was it that that kind of led you to, be particularly interested in Neolithic Island. I know, obviously, you've a broader interest outside of that, but it seems that Neolithic is the thing that you keep returning to. What was it about the Neolithic period that drew you? Yeah. Um, well, it was about. I mean, my initial interest was in was in megalithic terms, mm-hmm. and then 
it, it, it sort of broadened into I did so I did an, an MA looking at my, my MA thesis was looking at megalithic tombs in in um, it sort of across that area from Lewis Mon and Cavan uh, Roscommon Leitrim and then I did my PhD on the prehistory of North Leinster mm-hmm. um, broadly Loudmead Westmead Longford and then out of that I developed this interest particularly in stone axes. Mm. Uh, because they seem to me to offer this was now or by now in the early kind of 90s and it seemed to me that they offered tremendous potential as an untapped resource and so I started the Stone Axe project along with Owen Grogan and that's still ongoing staggering along a few decades later and we've 20,000 plus Stone Axes on a database and of course the use of Stone Axes begins in the Mesolithic and extends beyond the Neolithic, but I think most people would agree that it's main the main period of their production and use, and that certainly their organised production from particular quarries and so on was in the Neolithic, and that in turn then led to me questioning, well, hang on now, what's the links between these are different, quite different uses of stone, mm-hmm. at the monumental scale and at the hand scale, and you when you go to the quarries, they're actually using quite similar techniques for extraction. Uh, you know, it's basically quarrying and preliminary working. And some of those techniques, and this is a this is a, an approach that colleagues in Brittany have particularly explored is, you know, they've looked at, they've gone and looked at, a, 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 it's granite in, 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 a, in Brittany, but the same principle applies. They've been able to, to actually piece put, to put back together outcrops. Um, from the analysis of the structural stones of, of megalithic monuments. So basically the, 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 the outcrop was taken apart mm-hmm. and created into different kinds of orthostats and corbel slabs and so on, and then put back together. So there's, a, there's some really interesting things going on, but, but to answer your question, it was really, to me then it was on another track, which was, well, we're now looking at quite different ways of thinking about stone on the one hand, but on the other hand, the recognition that the same people were doing this, mm-hmm. making monuments, making stone axes, and that in principle, they were applying the same kinds of techniques. Yeah. And I found that a very useful approach to think about. Mm-hmm. And coming back to Newgrange, when you think, for example, about the grey wacky slabs, you know, they, were, they were brought, however, they were trucked, or not trucked, trucked is an entirely inappropriate word yeah. in the Neolithic, but, you know, handled, manoeuvred, possibly by boat, maybe brought across land, maybe brought up river. But there's certainly evidence that they were worked on the site as well. There's lots of, you know, what we'd in other circumstances describe a debitage, bits of bits of flakes of of grey wacky. And you see that particularly at New at Nouth now outside the you know where the area is outside, but it was also evident at Newgrange. Um and I think one of the uses of those big hammer stones that we see in the in the facade those granite and granodire um, cobbles one of their uses certainly was as hammerstones to work the grey wacky on site you've got the quartz which is both decorative but was probably also being used at least as one of the tools to make the rock art you know to make the megalithic art mm. uh, you've got the megalithic art itself on the slabs again going back to first reactions of you know as an archaeologist about new range of place like that it is literally stunning mm-hmm. to see individual pockmarks right. that people made and, the, and you can see in the art and you think that was somebody's hand 5,000 years ago and, and, and their labour and their effort and their craft and their skill and we're still seeing it literally in front of our eyes as the work of one person combined with other people to give us this enormous collage and explosion of creativity if you like and knowledge so I mean, I, I hope I've tried to express in some of those things some of what I see as fascinating about the Neolithic and, and the ways that I've tried to, you know, I've, I've developed my approaches and changed my approaches over time. And then I suppose going back to some of those initial things, mm-hmm. I think something that we've probably become more aware of but haven't probably appreciated enough is that, you know, we have these different styles of megalithic terms and that the earliest of them go back to, you know, the Palnebrone, the Porter term, 3,800 and before, 
the earliest core tombs, 3,700. There's this continuing debate about when passes tombs start, but they're certainly on the go by 3,500, 3,600. And then a couple of hundred years later, we have this explosion of, you know, the mega cemeteries, particularly uh, in the east of Ireland, Boyne Valley, Loch Cruin, and the west, Carrimore, Carrowkeel. But at the same time, it's apparent that at least some of the earlier monuments are still in use. So going back to some of your earlier points about, you know, this connectivity of people, I think they were at a local level, they, that they were still tied into these different local monuments, as well as, if you like, in some way being socially allied to or uh, part of the society that produced, that produced Newgrange. Um, and, and the other monuments in the Boyne Valley. So we're, we're looking at a quite, a, I think, a, a complex world in which people could be both situated locally in a social context and tied into sacred places and ancestral places at a local level. Yeah. And at the same time being, uh, you know, tied in in, in, a, in a wider context to this, um, this kind of wider social world as, as exemplified by the passage terms. You know, and I think we see that, for example, in Frank Prendergast's work, thinking about, you know, in a kind of this, this idea of a social network mm. and, the, and literally the visibility of passage tombs over long distances mm. and their specific alignments and so on. You know, that they're telling us both about knowledge and, and linkage to, to local places, but also this, this kind of more widespread social organisation that spans a quite wide area of, of, of the landscape. That's very interesting. And... You know, I suppose we've we've spoken a little now about the the later phases of Newgrange. Why do you think the location attracted the initial builders of Newgrange? What is it about the Boyne Valley and that particular region around where you have Newgrange, South and South, that you think was so special to anywhere else in the country? I know it's particularly good land. Um, yeah. Was it as simple yeah. as that? Do you think, or was there something else? Yeah, that's. I think that's one of the you know, reasons, and you could see for, you know, south-facing slopes, relatively light soil. You see why early, early near the agriculturalists were, were attracted. The river itself with its, you know, the, the salmon, famous for its salmon of knowledge and so on in later tradition. Um, and, and that, of course, would have been, if, if you think about, you know, the river as a, as a kind of tran- major transit route, it would have been very important. It's that kind of you know, the route up into the broader Boyne Blackwater area. And of course, then that brings you to Lock Crew, mm-hmm. overlooking the Blackwater. Uh, and then Frank Mitchell, I think, was the one who initially pointed out that, you know, if you think about the the, the ridge in the wider sense of the ridge running from Nouth to Nouth at the West End, Newgrange in the middle, and Nouth at the East End, and the river, as it hits, as it hits the shale ridge at Nouth, bends to the south, mm. And keeps to the south, forming this big U, and then comes back up again, east of of of, um, of Douth. So you have that kind of bend of the river, and then the Mattock, which is a tributary of the Boyne, is is to the north of the ridge. So in a way, you've almost got like a quasi island, and that's how Frank Mitchell described it. And I and I and I've seen some, you know, three dimensional illustrations that that make that point very well. Mm. Um, so I, I think it had a particular character and that's why it, you know, and if you think about the broader, you know, tradition within or the past tomb tradition of placing monuments on hilltops and making them into visible, you, you know, I think there are a number of different factors that come together. And, and then, of course, that the majority of that, going back to what I was saying early on about the way that, that the sun lights up the land at this time of year, yeah. about the land being south facing, you know, the major area of land south of, south of Newgrange and north between them and the river is, is south facing so it's war- it's literally warm land uh, I think all of those things combined you know m- made it a special place and um, and then of course once the monuments were built mm-hmm. they, they they literally was were kind of like a magnet that drew later and later generations there i think they were sacred places and places that people return to and in that returning as we do now in terms of you know going back and and celebrating the changing of the season we're in a way evoking that notion of the sacredness of these places as well yeah absolutely i think it's very interesting and you know we mentioned earlier that newgrange and, and the neolithic in ireland has parallels elsewhere to some degree as well 
how does Newgrange fit into this kind of European Neolithic? What does it say about Ireland's connections to the rest of Northwestern Europe? And what are the kind of the key differences that Ireland does a little bit differently to, to the rest of them? Well, I mean, I, I think, more, I suppose to start, I, I suppose at the kind of broadest level, Atlantic Europe, mm. from the south of, of Spain up to southern Scandinavia, you know, Denmark, uh, one of the classic features of the Neolithic in that area that, that makes it distinctive and different from the Neolithic in, in the rest of Europe is the construction of megalithic tombs. Mm. Now, we know, you know, megalithic tombs are a global phenomenon as well. So there are different societies in different parts of the world at different times decide to build megalithic tombs. And that they're, but they're not, they generally seem to be for the purposes that we've been talking about for the, to contain the bones of the dead. And then coming back to the Neolithic, this seems to have been a particular feature of the Neolithic of Western Europe. And, you know, starts, megalithic tombs date from before 4,000 at the earliest down to, as I say, in, our, in Ireland, we have them down to 2,500. And there are parts of France as well where they're being constructed at that date. So it's a tradition that lasts well over 2,000 years. And within it then there are different strands and one of those strands, I suppose you could describe it as that, is, is this passage tomb strand where architecturally you have the idea of a round monument, a round cairn covering over a constructed passage leading into a chamber. And the passage is normally low with a kind of flat roof. And then you come into this chamber, which is normally roofed in a number of different ways, but with a higher area so you can stand up in it. Mm -hmm. Then more specifically, there are areas like Brittany and Ireland and Britain that have megalithic art as an aspect of that tradition. So you can see how there are areas that have, might have been had closer links. Mm -hmm. And I think that the art is one way of one expression of those. There are, again, some objects as well that occur in those different areas that suggest there were linkages between those areas. I think the old idea that, you know, if we went back to somebody like Gordon Child initially writing about the explanation of cultural change and innovation, he always, you know, he thought that it, it, it in many cases involved people on the move. And so he had this idea of a kind of movement along the Atlantic facade that spread this phenomenon. I think now we're more inclined to think that these are societies that are developing in different areas with contacts between them. And again, that we've probably underplayed the extent to which people were using the Atlantic seaways, not just at particular phases, but as a kind of ongoing aspect of Neolithic life. And then, of course, if you begin to think in those ways, well, that enables you to have materials moving and ideas moving on an ongoing basis, not just at the beginning or end of a phase. And I think that maybe is a better rationale for what we're seeing as the linkages between places. And then you come down at a, you know, a more specific level to the links between, say, somewhere like the Vine Valley in Orkney. And the art is, you know, there's definitely links in the art there. The links in the monument I mean, Maze Howe in Orkney, for example, is a line towards sunset. It's a line towards the sunset on winter solstice, so it looks like there's a very something very similar going on in people's heads about yeah. the meaning of these monuments. There are objects that we could, you know, like the North Maysed, for example, and Maysheads more generally that seem to show us links between Orkney and Vine Valley and places in between. So we can probably think of these, you know, linkages that are going on at different levels and meaning differently, some of them more or less are kind of background traditions that are active, you know, that are there in the background. Mm -hmm. And some as more active traditions that are reinforced by ongoing links between different areas, human links, if you like, between different areas. So I think certainly the Boyne Valley is linked into this kind of wider, the development of, of Europe, of, of Neolithic societies, European level. Mm -hmm. and, and I suppose thinking about it, you know, in that wider way, you could see it in parallel to somewhere like Stonehenge, mm -hmm. Which, which doesn't really have a strictly, you know, exact megalithic tradition. But it is clear that people in, working in that area of southern Britain had links with Orkney, were probably aware of what was going on in the Boyne Valley. You know, this megalithic art carved in chalk in, in, in the Stonehenge area. So this, the, the, the links aren't as strong as they are with Orkney. But in these, I suppose if we could call them core places or you know, core sacred places in the Neolithic. There, there were certainly linked, people were aware, I think, of what was going on in these different areas. That's very interesting. And 
you know, you, you as somebody who's looked at the Neolithic period for, uh, you know, a long period, are there any kind of general preconceptions that you see out there in the general public about the Neolithic and about prehistoric island in general, even or even Newgrange, that you think you'd like people to think about the Neolithic a little differently, perhaps? Uh, I don't know if that question makes sense, but... <laughs> entire, entire sense, because um, I think one of, the, one of the things that's hardest for archaeologists, and dare I say historians, mm-hmm. is to do something that I think anthropologists have at least recognised head-on as an issue which is to move outside, when we write, Mm -hmm. to move outside our own society Mm -hmm. and to think about the Neolithic as an entirely different world. And I actually think that's one of the biggest challenges for us. And I think it's uh, anthropologists, as I say, and they fall into the same trap, but, but they're more, I think they certainly write more about this challenge of writing from the position of somebody being you know, having to move away from their own society, observing an entire, observing entirely different societies, or indeed writing as an anthropologist about their own society, and 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 thinking about things in a different way. And I think that's really a challenge for us. And I think something like the 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 solstice is a very good example because I think we're totally in tune, you know, because of where we're at and our obsession with time and technology. And this notion that, you know, wow, people got this right and they were able to align a monument on midwinter sunrise. And and um, and I think they get kind of stuck on that point as opposed to thinking about, well, actually, this is no, this is more about the turning of the year. Mm-hmm. It's more about this week. It's more about the fact that it isn't just Newgrange, but there are other passage terms that have this kind of alignment on key points of the year, solstice and, and, equi- and equinoxes. And so they were they were in tune with the land and the sun and the stars and the moon and the soil in a way that we can only dream about and wish we could get back some of when we think about a green economy. But they were living the land. And going back to my particular obsession with stone, they had ways of, you know, remember, I know colleagues talk about stone who and who nap stone. And they'd say, they'd tell you from knocking two stones together, a kind of potential hammer stone on the stone they want to work with. They will tell you before they tap into the stone, depending obviously on the kind of stone they work with, they will tell you whether this is going to work or not. Mm. And that's, you know, so that, and that's somebody coming from people who are, who are, if you like, re-engaging with prehistoric technology. So you can imagine if you're brought up with this and you're working with stone from the time you were a baby, and you know, and there are you know, your folks are working around a fire, and they're chatting and talking, but they're also doing a whole range of different things, and that's their way of life, and they're 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 weaving literally their way of life out of these diverse sets of materials that they're working with, and we can approach that experimentally, um, which is I think one of the things my colleagues in in UCD try are doing very well, but we we we're still grappling, if you like, with an entirely different world, and and I and I don't think that. I think we should be standing back and kind of in and enjoying that, but trying to be careful not to clothe it in our clothes or our technology or our approach to life or our obsession with looking at a a watch and time. And, and even, um, you know, thinking back to, you know, and I know it's only half a century ago, but you know, even the way farming was done Mm. half a century ago, and then you go back even a bit further, and 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 not you know farming traditional farming as we call it was always open to change as well, but in general it operated in a in a different way you know it operated where people had time they knew they were under pressure to do things but in the sense they had time to chat to the neighbours doing farming work was embedded in all sorts of things life was much more locally based in terms of the materials that they used. And I think that's that's what we have to think about in terms of of the Neolithic and, and Newgrange of people who are living this life at local and um, these were people who are pedestrians. You know, they walked, they walked or they went by boat. They didn't have wheeled craft, uh, sorry, wheeled vehicles as yet. Uh, you know, there and and hence there the importance of 
the seaways and the rivers as modes of transport because it was the most it was the quickest way people could move recognizing also da the dangers of, of of the seaways in particular notably at this time of year and then apart from that they were walking so you think about it, it was a traditional way of, you know, a pedestrian way of life that put constraints on how far people could travel or the effort they had to put into traveling far distances brings into focus the notion of pathways through forests and the landscape was still predominantly forested. It was being opened up for agriculture, but still predominantly wood, woodland, I think, deciduous woodland. And, and, and I think that's caught very nicely. And one of the nice things about the, um, the new visitor centre at, at, at Newgrange is that nice capture of the woodland and the animals in the woodland and people encountering those, if you like, and getting a lot of their resources out, out that. And, and to think as well that, you know, yes, these people are farmers, but of course a lot of their resources they're getting from the, from the woodland, they're still using wild resources, they're using red deer and so on. And it's, so it's a kind of a mixed lifestyle. So I, I think in all of those different aspects, it's, it's a, I suppose it's the it's the it's how different life was yeah. to what life was today and and how accessible and and again going back to where you know how archaeological research then makes that world accessible mm -hmm. and how I think it's very important that we have conversations like this and how it's very important that archaeologists and our colleagues working on the past whatever whatever discipline they come from make that knowledge accessible mm -hmm. and that it becomes something that people can be aware of when they go to visit somewhere like you know Newgrange or Knock Row or whether it's um, a, a Neolithic monument or other monument close to them that they kind of can think about the people who are there mm -hmm. and who are inhabiting the island you know in this case 5,000 years ago. Yeah. yeah it's incredible isn't it? There's a whole lot for me to think about there. I think there's really interesting um, points, you know, and I definitely agree that the importance of trying to put the anthropology back into the archaeology, I think, is yeah. uh, hugely important, particularly when we're beginning to, and I think things like ancient DNA help us really to visualize people perhaps a little better in some ways that at least we're imagining what they look like and once you start imagining what they look like that starts to lead you to how did they behave what did they believe and uh it, i think it all helps it gives us another lens to look at the past with you know so I, i'm excited to see what comes out about um you know in the, in the next few years the the recent few years has produced so much information about new range of no doubt that the next few will continue to build on that so yeah and you and you mentioned the, the excavation at Dallas Hall you know and I think that's 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 you know potentially very important in terms of in terms of our understanding of you know the the, the sequence of how things developed in terms of passage in the Boyne Valley I think it's a fascinating place and um you know a place we, we hear a lot more about just and I suppose just while we're here, you know, I mean, I know we've, you know, we're talking about about um, about Newgrange, but I, you know, it, it, it's nice. Um, as I say, my way into this was through Nouth, mm -hmm. and and having the privilege of working there as a as an undergraduate for a couple of years, and it's nice to remember George, you know, George's um, and his ma monumental work at, at Nouth, mm -hmm. um, and and the last volume on the art in in the in the, in the course of you know, very close to publication in the academy, and George still going strong at ninety. Yeah. You know, nice to remember him at this time of year. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, and that's it. We're kind of. It, it's amazing to be able to to continue to. There's such wealth of information that is still being revealed about these sites, but we can't forget the people that first started to pull at some of these threads. And you know, yeah, it, it, it's incredible, isn't it, that um, a project like North it's still ongoing in many ways. It's ongoing, and, and there's such a rich archive of material there for people to work with. It's a, you know, and, and again, going back to Jessica's project. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why, that's why, that's what's so important about excavation and, and something for all of us to bear in mind, no matter what sector we work in, that what we're doing is um, we're, we're shifting the value of what was contained in the ground mm -hmm to the archive of the site yes and we have a response you know there's a big responsibility there mm -hmm. fantastic challenge mm -hmm. 
but a big responsibility because that archive is there to be as and should be there to be mined way into the future you know and i think sometimes again talking about talking about um you know i think people uh, the you know the wider community sometimes i think um <laughs> and, not, and not by the way not surprising because we as archaeologists put so much focus on it you know they they well why aren't you excavating that you know what why why, why the site's so important well, why not just go and do it and and so there's a couple of things there i think to you know there's one to think about the, the cost the sheer cost of it which i think people underestimate and and then the cost of taking it through from excavation which is what's visible to all the post-ex mm is the heart in in many ways you know is, is probably what's most time consuming part and then i think there's this other thing about you know there's this thing about value about well you know when we when, we, when it's there and and it's in the ground we know it's there and and we can assess you know the, the site we know is unless it's threatened by development or whatever it's there mm -hmm. so i think then you can you can judge when you want to go and do an excavation or judge the context and have the research questions that you should have in mind in terms of saying, well, what do I want to find out about the site when I go and excavate it? And I think that's very important to, 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 to bear in mind, you know, and, and to try and get that point across that sometimes it, and it's actually, you know, thinking again about the future, it's fundamentally important to, you know, to, to bear that point in mind. And I suppose that coming back to the, Boyne Valley, you know, it's to me, it makes entire sense that with, you know, the very extensive excavations at, at, at Nelth, the extensive, equally, you know, in, in, in many ways, um, you know, there are parts of both sites that are still intact, but there were very extensive excavations at both Nelth and Newgrange. And it seems to me make entire sense then that you would not really do do excavation at the moment at Douth because it's the site that's effectively been left in the way. I mean, there was disturbance in the nineteenth century. There were small scale excavations to do with the, the revetment, um, but it makes entire sense to me. You'd really, I think, want to have a a, a very good research imperative to you know to look at Douth because, in a way, it provide it it, it, it provides us with. Um, this is the main site at Douth now, as opposed to the newly excavated or discovered site at Douth Hall. It provides us with the way what these sites look like before excavation. Yes. And also then a reservoir of this, you know, a, a reservoir, an untapped reservoir. And who knows what way technology will develop in the future in terms of potentially being able to interrogate the site in a more perhaps keyhole way and look at key, you know, buried features in a way that we can only imagine at the moment. And then, of course, there's all the there's all the, the archaeology that's there, you know, the, the the newly discovered sites. And in some way, come back to the research framework. The question is, well, what's the you know, how do you begin to assess the, the, the a strategy to begin to think about the, the research potential of some of those sites? I th I think that's very true, and you know, I I think there's been such remarkable discoveries made from very old archives. I had a, a really interesting conversation with uh, Robert and Porrick and, uh, and Lara and, and such about their work at Karakil, for example, which is going back yeah. to McAllister's excavations in, in the early 20th century. And the kind of insights they've given into Neolithic Island without, by opening a box, without ever going, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. look to yeah. dig the site again. I think, you know, the, there's two aspects, I, I think, for me, there's the practical aspect about, you know, as you say, the cost, the storage as well, where all of this material goes. Um, and then there's the the value aspect as well about are we giving enough credit to future archaeologists and the technologies and the insights and the techniques they might have to be able to do a much better job than I can do today. So, you know, I I, I very much enjoy excavating, but I think you're right, that balance has to has to be kept all the time rather than just going oh we haven't looked at that yet let's go and open it for yeah the fun yeah. of it you know so um I, I i think yeah and 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 i mean i think it's entirely understandable 
you know, that we have this excitement as archaeologists about excavation mm. because it's that direct encounter with the past. Yes. But then, you know, you look at these post-excavation archives and you say, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of digging to be done in them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's about getting getting the maximum amount of information out of those post-excavation archives, I think, as well. A absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Gabriel, I want to thank you very much. Uh, pleasure, Neil. I enjoyed the chat. So that's the end of this episode. And it in fact brings us to the end of our mini-series on Newgrange, the Winter Solstice and Neolithic Island. I'd like to thank Gabriel. And I'd also like to thank Maurice and Claire, Jessica and Robert as well for all of their time, their thoughts and their insights. It's given me a whole new way of thinking about Neolithic Island in many ways. And I think what's really, really exciting is that you can look at a site that we know or we believe we know particularly well, like Newgrange, a site that was excavated some time ago now, that has been well researched. And you can see that new insights are coming out all of the time. And that's true of archeology span in general. The past is not a static thing. You never get to the end of understanding really. One question leads to another and you continually pull at the threads until you find a whole lot of new questions that lead you in new directions. It's fascinating. It's one of the reasons I love archaeology, and particularly Irish archaeology and prehistory. Um, I, I just think that it's an ever-evolving story. I hope you've enjoyed this mini-series. You know, I just kind of felt that, seeing as we weren't able to go to the likes of Knockrow or Newgrange this year, that it would be great to perhaps shed a different sort of light onto the past. Again, I'm grateful for everybody's time. I'm grateful for your company in this as well. And as we reach the end of the year, all I can do is wish you a happy solstice, if that's the right thing to wish, the right expression, I'm not sure. Uh, I also wish you a very happy Christmas and let's hope a much better new year for all of us. Thank you for your company and I'm looking forward to new episodes in 2021. Thank you.